The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us here this morning as we gather together, that you would help us to focus, help us to put away our distractions, help us to be present to your presence among us. Help us to believe that you see us in all of our complexity, and your response is always to move towards us to love, restore, and heal, and to help us to believe that you have seen to this moment that we are all gathered here and help us to hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, Happy Lunar New Year! Yeah! Happy Valentine's Day! And let me just say, as an aside, Valentine's Day is always a good day to examine our often deficient theology of singleness. Jesus was single and lived the fullest human life imaginable. Let's just say that, get that in there. While we say Happy Valentine's Day, Happy President's Day tomorrow. So many things to celebrate. And happy Transfiguration Day. Did you see that one coming? Oh, yeah. That's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, it all started, presumably, with just a simple invitation to take a hike. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to do a little mountaineering. It's not a large mountain, Mount Tabor. It's just north of Nazareth, which is just north of Jerusalem. It's about 900, mile, 900 feet high or so. And these friends of Jesus have spent years following him around, listening to his teachings, witnessing his miracles. So by the time Jesus invites them to the mountaintop, they probably think they have a, they have a pretty good reason, actually, to think that they actually know this guy. You know, they know him as a teacher, a storyteller, a healer, traveling companion. His face, his mannerisms, his, his mission, all are familiar to these disciples. Familiar, endearing, and safe. And all of that is about to change spectacularly. I mean, it will start spectacularly. But after this big event, we might say that if this were a movie and we had a musical score behind this, now things might go from a major key to a minor key from this point on, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. They will come down that mountain. And as almost an ominous note to end this story, we have this line in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they'd seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I just don't want us to miss this. So these three disciples, they go up to this mountain, they see this unbelievable event, 
and they're coming down the mountain and Jesus drops the whole risen from the dead idea on them. <laughs> I don't think they heard it. I really don't. I think they were still too blown away by what they just experienced. Uh, but the word dead there is so interesting that that's actually the last word of this famous story. That's, I think, instructive. We'll come back to that. So what happened on that mountain? Why does it matter? Those are the two questions we're going to look at briefly today. What happened? Well, here's where I kind of was staring at my blank screen and trying to write words. What happened? Because what happened on that matter mountain is better experienced than written about. It's a little like asking me, what happened on my first date with Torelli, my wife? I mean, I can tell you the events, like we saw a movie, but describing how I was falling head over heels for her, how her voice or her body, her mannerisms, her energy, her movement, her beauty, her braces, what? Well, we were pretty young when we started dating. Completely captured and enthralled me. I don't have words for that. It's Valentine's Day, people. Let me go on and on here. But the text tells us simply that he was transfigured. And apparently that involves his clothes becoming dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. That's what the text says. So before their very eyes, Jesus changes in some way that's mysterious to us. And he becomes at once both fully himself and fully strange, to be honest. Mysterious. The man they thought they knew is suddenly more, suddenly other. The vision the disciples behold removes the veil of Jesus' humanness to reveal also his divinity. Wondrous, frightening, powerful, unexpected, and rich. And at this moment, these disciples must be thinking, this guy is something else. My gosh, the miracles, the healings, the profound wisdom, and now this. That was enough for them to digest. But there's more. There's always more with Jesus. Shockingly, now he's talking to Elijah and Moses. And for those of you not keeping track, those guys have been dead for centuries. I mean, Moses had died, but Elijah kind of never died, but was taken into heaven on a fiery chariot. But that's its own wild Bible story for another day. One freaky story at a time, I say. But here they are with Jesus on the mountain forever linking Jesus to the larger story of God's redemptive work through Israel. This seems to be all crumpled up with past, or time seems to be all crumpled up with past, present, and future, all kind of touching for a moment. And what's going on here is that God's great project of the renewal of all things is officially being handed off to Jesus. I mean, we have Moses up there from 14 centuries ago and Elijah up there from eight centuries ago. Moses representing the law. He's the lawgiver. Elijah representing the prophets, the law and the prophets. Kind of a, a summary way of describing the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament as Jesus talks about it. Moses and Elijah have found their true successors. A new Moses who will give and have his own kind of exodus. A new Elijah that comes 
with prophetic message. Elijah and Moses, obviously channeling Carrie Underwood as they are saying, Jesus, take the wheel. You didn't see that Carrie Underwood reference coming, did you? We may not know what they're talking about or what they were thinking when Jesus was transfigured, but we do know that after Elijah and Moses show up, the disciples, it says, were terrified. And they didn't know what to say. Of course they didn't know what to say. But of course, Peter says something anyway, which is what Peter tends to do. It starts off really great. He started off so good. I mean, if he would have just stopped, because he started off with this. It is good to be here. Touchdown, Peter. True. Don't say another word. It's just good to be here. But he continues. I know what we'll do. We'll build a memorial. We'll build a memorial to Moses over there. We'll build a memorial to Elijah over there. We'll build a memorial to Jesus over there. It's going to be awesome. We'll sell tickets. Maybe we'll have a gift shop and guided tours. Listen, do you ever struggle with not knowing whether your bright ideas are good ideas? Because Peter gets what we might call feedback on his idea. (laughs) God tells him directly what he thinks of his idea. His brilliant idea prompts the thunderous voice of God. The clouds overshadow them, and out comes a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Not listen to Moses. Didn't say listen to Elijah. They actually have disappeared from the scene. It's just Jesus that's left. And the voice from heaven says, listen to to Jesus. Now that's what happened. So why does it matter? Well, I want to give you at least three things, and I know there are way more. The first is, I believe the transfiguration gives us a Bible that you can enjoy. A Bible that you can enjoy. And what do I mean by that? God makes it clear to Peter, James, and John, listen to him. And as we seek to follow the way of love, if we are trying to live our lives distinctively as Christians, and I know there are some of you right now who are not necessarily identifying as Christians, and so this is something that you're overhearing right now and, and, and listening to. That's totally great. However you may identify, but if you're trying to really actually identify distinctively as a Christian, Jesus' voice will have priority over every voice In Scripture. Or as Jesus forthrightly said to the disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, you can read about this in Luke 24, he said, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus was telling them, It's all about me, actually. Some people call this the Jesus hermeneutic. And it's so important. I'll let Brian Zahn talk about this with us with this quote. He says, Jesus is the true and living word of God. Jesus is what the law and prophets point toward and bow to. Jesus is what the Old Testament was trying to say, but could never fully articulate. 
Jesus is the perfect Word of God in the form of a human life. God couldn't say all He wanted to say in the form of a book, so He said it in the form of Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. The Law and the Prophets were the lesser lights in the pre-Christ night sky. They were the moon and stars. Israel could grope forward by their soft light. The Hebrews could navigate through the pagan night by constellations in a world of Stygian darkness. The moonlight and starlight emanating from the Torah and the prophets made all the difference. But with Christ, morning is broken. The new day has dawned. The sun of righteousness has risen with healing in its rays. Now the moon and the stars, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets are eclipsed by the full glory of God in Christ. And so, ritual sacrifice and Torah sanctions and killing in the name of God, all part of Scripture, are all eventually reevaluated in the light of Jesus and what He taught. I think that Jesus saves the Bible from being just another violent and vengeful religious text. I'll put it another way, and I'm still channeling Brian Zahn when I say this. There's a way of reading the Bible that's bad for you. I mean, if you want a violent, retributive God, the Bible will give that to you. If you want, vi- if you want capital punishment, if you want to hate your enemies, the Bible will give those things to you. If you want a divine warrant for your opinion, the Bible will give that to you. If you want to be a smug, self-righteous know-it-all, the Bible will give that to you, I'm afraid. If you want assurance that only people like you are going to heaven, well, the Bible will give that to you. And I think that's when the Bible's bad for you. But if you want peace, nonviolence, mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, humility, advocacy, and love, well, the Bible will give that to you. But it will do so by faithfully pointing you to Jesus. When we look to the Bible without self-interested agendas, the Bible says to us, now look to Jesus. He is the true Word of God, the Word made flesh, the divine logos, the logic of God. When the Bible becomes a faithful and trusted guide to lead you to Jesus, that's when the Bible's really good for you. Listen to Him, the voice in the cloud says. Listen to the part about liberation to the oppressed, good news to the poor, sight to the blind, the part about loving your neighbor as yourself and caring for the stranger, loving your enemy, taking up crosses to die in order to live, to be last in order to be first to refuse the invitation to turn away from God's loving care and guidance. So that's the first thing. A Bible that must be always read through the lens of Jesus is a Bible that will give you life, is good news for the whole world, and leads you faithfully to know and understand the God revealed in Jesus. Secondly, it gives you the transfiguration, a goal you can embrace a goal you can embrace. What is the goal of God for your life? I think the Apostle Paul puts it best when he says in Romans chapter 8, it is to be conformed to the image of his Son. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that the goal of God for your life is to be biblical. Nowhere, actually, is that the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to be Christ-like, Christ-like. Yes, we learn how to do this from Scripture, 
Scripture points us that the goal is to be like Jesus. Listen to Him. So we don't just want biblical justice, because we could actually use that to return to our own lust for vengeance, our own bloodlust, our own um, returning to kind of a, a vengeful ways. No, we don't want biblical justice. We want Christ-like justice. We don't want biblical manhood or womanhood to buy cherry-picking machismo figures or submissive figures. No, we look to Jesus to be Christ-like, no matter what gender identity and expression is ours. We don't want biblical politics that turns very quickly into kind of a Machiavellian politics. No, we, we strive for the values of the reign of God which is marked by love and mercy and forgiveness, peace and grace, Christ-likeness. That's what turned the world upside down in the first century. It was a group of people who were reclaiming, claiming that this God revealed in Jesus is a God of lowliness, a God who would rather die than kill his enemies, a God who sits on a cross who extends mercy and forgiveness to people even as they are killing God, a God who rose again from the dead and broke through death. And this inspired a group of people to lay down their lives and to lose their lives with enemy love, something we can maybe perhaps barely comprehend, but it turned the world upside down. Why do we as a church want to be anti-racist? Why do we as a church want to work for the dismantling of white supremacy? Because we want to be like Christ. That's why. Why do we take risks and branch out and begin things like City Hope and counseling centers and New Beginning House of Studies? Well, because we want to be like Christ. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. Why do we talk about hard things and interrogate our own complicity and systemic oppression? because you want to be like Christ. That's a goal that you can embrace. That is a distinctively Christian motivation for seeking to make all things right, to joining God in the renewal of all things. See, the transfiguration with its resounding, thundering voice from heaven to listen to Him is exactly what the church needs to hear right now, maybe more than ever, as so much of the American church has been hijacked by nationalism, is soaked in white supremacy, and looks to political messiahs, which are modern ways of building tents for Moses and Elijah. Jesus is left standing on that mountain with those disciples. Jesus is left standing with you right now. And if we are going to embrace the way of love, we, like them, must listen to Him. And the third thing that I think that the reason the transfiguration matters so much is because it gives you a God you can trust, a Bible you can enjoy, a goal you can embrace, and a God you can trust. Because the transfiguration puts a fine point on what the New Testament says elsewhere. And that is, very simply, that God is like Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very being. 
Or as Paul says in the book of Colossians, Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. What is God like? God is like Jesus. And Jesus is what God has to say. And when I speak about the Christian faith with those who are seeking, telling them God is like Jesus, it's almost always met with, well, if that's the case, I'm interested. The Word made flesh, as John would write in John chapter 1, many years after the transfiguration. We have a new way now of knowing God, and it's not a book, it's a person. A book was not on the manger, a book was not on the cross, a book did not rise again from the dead, a person did, revealing to us the true character and nature of God. If you want to know what God is like, the scriptures say, look at Jesus. I mean, look, this is an adjustment that everybody was having to make throughout the New Testament. I mean, there's a place in the Bible where Jesus and his followers needed lodging for the night. And they go up and they knock on the door and they're told, you know, can we, can we stay here with you Samaritans? And they were told, no, you're not coming in. So James and John say, you know, we know what happens now. We've seen how powerful this guy is. We've seen the miracles. I mean, that bread and the multiplication of all the bread to the five, that was awesome. The raising up of Lazarus. I mean, let's, let's do what we know Elijah would do. So they suggested Jesus that you should call down the fire and basically burn these people up. That would be biblical, they were saying. You know what Jesus says to them? Do you know what spirit that comes from, what you're saying right now about calling down? Do you know what spirit that comes from? It didn't come to take life, but to give life. Listen, friends. Anytime a Christian has fallen under the trance of reaching for raw power, to privilege themselves above others, you can be sure it's a demonic spirit at work. So what do you think is going on inside the head of James and John at that very moment? They're probably saying to themselves, okay, this is different. This is an adjustment that he's asking us to make here in how we think. And theologically, what I would argue is that this is, Jesus is, a more full revelation of God. Is what God has to say. That Moses can stone sinners and Elijah can burn up enemies, but for a Christian, that doesn't matter. Because we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus, and in so doing, we find a God we can trust who goes after the lost sheep who runs to greet the prodigal son, who has a long conversation with the woman at the well and does not condemn her, who provides for the person who has worked for one hour or 10 hours because every person matters. See, friends, you will never entrust your life over to a God who is not full of grace, mercy, love, and truth, nor should you. But if God is like Jesus, 
why would you wait another second? See, that's why the transfiguration is so important. A Bible you can enjoy, a goal you can embrace, a God you can trust. I love the season of Epiphany. I really do. It just sets us up well to enter into Lent. And if you'll notice, it begins and ends with a similar event. Just a few weeks ago, I was on here with you preaching on the baptism of Jesus. Begins with that event and then the transfiguration. is. Those are kind of the bookends. And both events had the clouds opening up and the thundering voice of God coming through. And in baptism, we hear the voice in second person to Jesus. It says, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. In the transfiguration, we hear the voice in the third person. And the voice is actually turned toward the church. The voice is actually turned toward you. And the voice says, this is my son. Listen to him. Hmm. Returning to the end of this story again, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Well, that's happened. We must come down from that mountain as well. We might say that's what happens on Ash Wednesday, where we remind ourselves of immortality and we begin the journey with Jesus to the cross, where we have the ultimate revelation of God as one who, instead of calling down wrath, speaks words of pardon, peace, mercy, and forgiveness. And we are sent to do likewise to tell the world that Jesus is what God has to say. And that is good news for everybody. So friends, happy Transfiguration Day. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask today that you would help us to live more and more into the assurance, into the beauty of the way of love of Jesus, as we have talked about it over these many weeks. Give us grace now as we enter into the time of Lent coming up on Wednesday, that you would begin as we come down that mountain between now and then, that you begin to prepare us for doing the hard work and the interrogation and the spiritual inventory, where we take away those things in our life that remove us farther from you and others and more and more embrace your way. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.